So we're in the series, uh, 1 Samuel right now, 2 Samuel coming up soon. Uh, we're in the series where we've been going through the books of 1 and 2 Samuel with the mind towards pursuit. Like everybody in the book is looking for something. Everybody in the book is, is pursuing something. They're chasing something. And we get to see the different things that they're pursuing throughout the story. But on top of it all, there is another character in the story that is doing pursuing as well. And that's God. We find repeatedly through the story that God is looking for a specific kind of person. He is pursuing a specific kind of person. And we see God found that person in a man named Samuel first. And now we're at the part of the story where Samuel has just anointed another guy, Saul, to be the king. And we're wondering, is Saul going to be one of these people that God has been pursuing? Is Saul going to be one of these people that is the kind of person God wants? And we're at the early stages of that question. Now, last week, we, of course, uh, were confused a little bit because after he was anointed to be the king, he then was encouraged to go and eliminate some Philistines, the enemy people, who had a garrison set up in Saul's own hometown, a town that was supposed to be dedicated to God, a town called Gibeah. And Saul doesn't do anything. And so we got a little disappointed with Saul then. And then when they're ready to crown him king, they bring him out to a place called Mizpah and they're ready to crown him the king, but no one can find him because he's hiding in amidst a bunch of luggage. And it's like, okay, this guy, is, there's something about him that's great. He's tall, he's handsome, God has chosen him to be the next king, but there's other stuff about him that we're just not so sure about. Seems a little cowardly, seems a little selfish, stuff like that. But all along that journey, it's God trying to do something in Saul's life and through Saul's life that is better than what the people thought they wanted. And that's what we covered last week. But now we're at this part of the story where we're wondering, is Saul going to step into his authority? Is he going to step into his role as the king? Is he going to rise to the task or are the warning signs going to end up taking over? And, and so let's just jump right into it. First Samuel chapter 11. We begin it with this account of a guy named Nahash or Nahash. I'm going to say Nahash. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. Um, that's um, scary. That's a little bit weird. That's a little bit strange. That's... Um, really frustrating. So the elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. I was reading that the, the other day and I was just thinking to myself, oh, how disgusting that would be to anticipate the guy. He's at that end of the line and I'm at this end of the line and he's working his way down all the men of my town and he's just gouging their eyes out one by one and I'm like next in line and I'm thinking, oh my, the Old Testament is a book that people avoid because it's like stories like this kind of creep everybody out. I mean, it's just gross. Incidentally, if you look in the footnotes 
you're going to see that um, what we are reading comes from an uh, ancient manuscript known as the Masoretic Text. But you might have heard there's these other ancient manuscripts called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's like a couple extra verses in front of this that gives us a little more context, telling us why Nahash was so mad at the people of Jabesh-Gilead and stuff like that. Now, I'm not going to get into all that because here's, here's the bottom line that you need to understand. There's some really important principles that scholars employ to try to figure out what goes into the Bible and what doesn't. And let me explain to you what that means. We aren't voting on what we think makes sense to go into the Bible. In fact, if we did that, we would choose to put those verses in to chapter 11. Because what those verses say is they say Nahash was going after all of the people of Israel on that side of the Jordan, and this a group of Ammon, excuse me, a group of guys from Jabesh Gilead escaped. And so now Nahash is mad at them because they escaped. And so now he's coming to the town to besiege the whole town because in that town there's some of these people who escaped. And Nahash is now upset and he's going to try to exert more vengeance on the whole town because of their harboring these fugitives from him. And after I explain that, maybe you think, well, that's interesting. I wish that was actually in the text. Or maybe you think, well, that's pointless. I don't really need to know that. But if you're like me, I thought to myself, oh my goodness, I really wish that were in the text because that makes the story richer and fuller and, and more, it gives me more context. And that's exactly the point. I'm not choosing what goes into the Bible based on what makes sense to me. And neither are the scholars. Because see, as a matter of fact, if you think through the scholarship of how we got the Bible, how the text of the Bible was transmitted through the ages, you're left with a question with regard to this particular verse. And the question is, is it more likely for a person to hear this story and add it to the text, or is it more likely for a person to read the story and then take it out of the text? And quite frankly, if you're anything like me, you'll agree, it's more likely that I've heard the story and I'm like, oh, that should be in the text. I just said that a few minutes ago. So it's far more likely that someone would read an explanatory thing and insert it than they would ever take a cool story and move it out and just delete it. Which means the thing that was added later is most likely these extra bits at the front. And so the thing that Samuel wrote down is most likely the part without it originally. In other words, good, logical, scientific scholarship goes into determining what Samuel wrote and what other people added later. In other words, you can trust your Bible. The footnote is interesting. It's cool, but you can trust your Bible. It's giving you accurate information from accurate historical context. Anyway, let's keep on moving because what's more important to me is that you understand what's going on with Jabesh Gilead. It's a weird city name, I know, but it's important that it's a weird city name because you might have thought, I wonder where else in the Bible a city like Jabesh Gilead would show up. And would you like to know that Jabesh Gilead is the last city mentioned in the book of the Judges? And Samuel is the last judge. The book of Judges ends... And then we get this interim book of Ruth. And then we begin to read the book of Samuel, and we are told that Samuel is a judge. 
So that means this story links by the name of the city directly to something that happened at the end of the book of Judges. And I want to tell you about it. What happened at the end of the book of Judges in chapter 19? There's a guy. He's from the tribe of Levi. And he's traveling through Israel. And he's late at night. He needs a place to stay. And so he, goes, he goes to a town in um, the region of Benjamin, a town named Gibeah. And he tries to spend the night there in the town square. But an old man comes out and says, I'm sorry, the people of this town are terrible. Let me take you into my house so that none of them rob you. So this man and his concubine, not a wife, for whatever reason, this woman is just a sex slave with him on this journey. And, uh, but she's not his wife. They never call him. Anyway, so he brings her with him into this other man's house And while the men are partying, a group of men outside come and pound on the door. And they say, we know you have a guest in there. Send him out here so that we can rape him. And the owner of the house says, I'm not doing that. And the guy who's the guest says, I don't want to do that. And so they come up with a plan. How about this? We'll send the concubine out and then do with her whatever you want. So he takes his concubine, sends her outside, and the men of the town rape her and violate her all night long. And the next morning, when the sun comes up, they leave her. She goes back to the house where her husband-ish guy is staying, and she falls on the threshold of the door. Much later in the morning, the man wakes up, goes to the door, and finds her there dead. He doesn't even, he hasn't been waiting around. He's not worried. He's slept the whole night. He finds her dead. So he puts her on his donkey, rides to his hometown, cuts her body up into 12 pieces, ships the pieces of her body throughout the nation of Israel and says, join me to battle the people of Gibeah who have done this terrible thing. The people of Israel gather at a place called Mizpah And there at that place, they agree they are going to attack not just Gibeah, but the entire tribe of Benjamin. And so they go in, and over the course of three or four days, they have a civil war with Benjamin, and like 60,000 people die. All the men of Benjamin, at least all the men of, of uh, the Gile- uh, excuse me, Gibeah, all the men of the Gibeah area and the Benjamin area, almost all of them, we think, are killed except 600 escape. 600 of them escaped to the mountains. So the people of Israel have basically wiped out all of the people of Benjamin. Men, women, children, everything. Just slaughtered them. And then these 600 men have escaped to the mountains. So then the rest of Israel says, what do we do about the 600 men who have escaped to the mountains? I know, they need women so they can repopulate the tribe. Where are we going to get women? So they say, did anyone not show up at Mizpah? Oh, yeah, the men from Jabesh-Gilead did not show up at Mizpah. So they go to the city of Jabesh-Gilead and kill everyone except for the virgin girls. And they give the virgin girls to the 600 men who escaped so that they can repopulate Benjamin. So now Jabesh-Gilead has been just wiped out. All the people are dead. Men, women, children, everybody's dead. And then they give these 600 men, these women, these girls that they have stolen from this city. And then it gets 
just one step worse where at the very end of the story they don't have enough girls from Jabesh Gilead. So the men, they tell them, just go throughout Israel, find some women who are partying and steal them. You can have whatever, whatever girl you want. And so they do that, and then they start repopulating Benjamin. And then I'm imagining that some of them are repopulating Jabesh Gilead. And it is a horrific story. Just one of the worst, worst series of events in the history of humanity. People slaughtering relatives left and right. And the last verse of the book of Judges tells us why. They did all of this stupid stuff. It's Judges 21, 25, and it says this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Every step along the way, they did something that made sense to the person who was doing it. And it ends up being this horrific story. And now, we come to Samuel, and we're supposed to have a king. And so the question is, are things going to be better now? The question is, is this king going to solve any of those problems that we just went through with all that judges stuff? And his first test involves the people of Jabesh Gilead. This is utterly fascinating to me that now the people of Jabesh Gilead are being oppressed by an outside force who's threatening to gouge out all their eyes, attack them, and do all kinds of evil to them. And the people of Jabesh Gilead are crying out to the rest of the nation to help them. The one tribe, the one group, the one city that, one, that, that wouldn't participate in this other battle, now they are the ones saying, would you all please help us? And of course... They say, we'll ask them to help, but if they don't help, then we will surrender to you, Nahash. But now, Israel has a king. So the question is, are the problems of the judges going to be undone? Are they going to be made better? That's the story we're entering into here. So verse 4, when the messengers came to Gibeah, of Saul. That's another thing. Gibeah, remember, this is Saul's hometown. Gibeah was the city that started the whole thing. It was the men of Gibeah who raped that woman. It was the men of Gibeah who then got slaughtered by the rest of Israel. It was the town, the city of Gibeah, that was the instigator of this entire problem. And that's Saul's hometown. That means that, means that Saul himself is most likely a descendant of one of those 14-year-old girls who was stolen from the city of Jabesh-Gilead. So maybe Saul has a soft spot in his heart for the people of Jabesh-Gilead. But Gibeah is where Saul is from. Just to put this into a real quick little package for you, Saul is perfectly positioned to be the undoing of the problem at the end of Judges. Saul is perfectly positioned to be the person who makes Gibeah gods again. Saul is perfectly positioned to be the person who welcomes Jabesh Gilead back in by sacrificing Israel to help them. Saul is perfectly positioned. The question is, will he rise to this moment? So here we go. Let's keep going on that. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. 
Just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen, and he asked, What is wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, (laughs) the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. Um, Something really important just happened there. Now, the writer of Samuel, I'm convinced, is familiar with the book of Judges because he's telling us this story about Saul from Gibeah and the people of Jabesh-Gilead and their problem. He's telling us about this. In fact, there's another detail we're going to see in just a moment that proves the writer of Samuel knows about the stories in the book of Judges. But that means that this phrase here might also be important. When Saul heard this, the Spirit of God came powerfully on him and he burned with anger. If you are familiar with the book of Judges, you might know that this phrase shows up many times. This exact phrase shows up three times to be exact. And all three times they are used for a man named Samson. Did any of you ever hear the Sunday school stories of Samson, the dude with the long hair and the incredible strength? He's like the Hercules of the Old Testament. Incredible dude. I'll read to you a few verses from Judges that indicate something about the Samson story. So the first one is going to be from Judges 14, beginning in verse 5. It says, Samson went down to Timnah, another city, together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. Now, of course, on the one hand, I'm thinking to myself, I would need the Holy Spirit to come in power on me for me to tear apart a young goat. But this dude, this dude tore apart a lion the way he is able to tear apart a young goat for crying out loud. This is Samson at his peak of power. And the text tells us it's because of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God descended on Samson in power and he ripped apart a lion. If you read the rest of the story, though, that's an interesting, weird story because then he later uses the lion in some incredibly selfish ways. Like, incredibly selfish ways. He, he plays off this lion thing, but he makes a riddle to some people. He's trying to trick them because he knows about this dead lion. He's trying to trick them. And so he makes this riddle. And the end result of the riddle is he's going to basically get a whole bunch wealthier off of these other people and their sacrifice. And the problem is that they then find out about the riddle. And so they come back to him and they give him the correct answer for the riddle. And now he's obligated to give them a whole bunch of stuff. In fact, he's obligated to give them 30 outfits the way they organize this particular bet. So he's supposed to give them 30 outfits. And this is the next time we read this phrase. It's in Judges 14, verse 19. It says this, The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to Ascalon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to the one who had explained the riddle. 
to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, and he does something incredibly selfish. He kills 30 innocent people, takes their clothes, and then gives them to the people who solved the riddle. And then, burning with anger, he goes home. That's not even the end of the story. You see, what Samson does later is he falls in love with this woman and he wants to marry her. And so he goes and he gets her to commit to him, gets the father to commit to him and all this kind of stuff. And then Samson does this wedding thing and then he beats up these people and then he kills the 30 people, he gives the clothing to them. And now because Samson has gone on this rampage, he now wants to go back to the woman and have his honeymoon with her. So he goes back to the woman's house, goes to the guy, the father, and says, okay, I want to sleep with my woman now. And the father says, sorry, she already married someone else while you were away. And Samson gets so mad, so mad, that he then goes and he torches the fields of the Philistines. He gets some foxes and he lights their tails on fire, puts torches in their tails, and then he sends them loose into their fields and they go burning down everything. And now the Philistines are mad at Samson. And so there's this, what the Philistines do is they go to the girl that he fell in love with and they kill her and her dad. And now Samson is mad at them and so he kills some more of those people. He kills like a whole bunch of them. And now the Philistines are mad at Samson again and they come to the people of Israel and say, we're going to extradite this war criminal. And the people of Israel say, you can have him. And so they tie Samson up, and we come back to the story in Judges 15. It says this, Judges 15, verse 14. And as he approached Lehi, he's tied up. They're taking him back to the Philistines. He's being extradited. The Philistines came toward him shouting, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, and in his anger, he murdered a thousand Philistines with a jawbone of a donkey. Three times the phrase shows up with Samson, and now it shows up with Saul. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. And the question is, Will Saul be just as selfish as Samson, or will Saul use the power of God in some different way? Before we get the answer to that, let me give you a little warning from Samson's life. We talked about this back when we talked about Samson two years ago in our study through the book of Judges, but I want to give it to you now just as a reminder. Here's a warning. Just because the power comes from God doesn't mean you're going to use it well. Just because the power comes from God doesn't mean that it's going to be used well. Samson was a man who three times the Holy Spirit came on him in a very specific way, in a very powerful way, and what he did with it is something incredibly selfish. Just because the power comes from God doesn't mean you're going to use it well. Okay, so now we got to find out what, what Saul is going to do. We're going to pick it up in verse 7. Back to Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 7. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel. 
proclaiming this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? Taking something, cutting it up into pieces and sending those pieces all throughout Israel. This is a reversal of that story at the end of Judges. The, the end of Judges, the man's concubine is dead. He cuts her up into pieces, sends her out, and now Saul is cutting up an animal, not a person. That's a step in the right direction. And then his threat, his threat is, I'm going to cut up your oxen if you don't join us in this fight. He's not threatening to kill the people. That's another step in the right direction. He's just threatening to kill their oxen, which is much, much better than killing a person. And so he's like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to do this same thing, but he's doing it better. But he's also, he's also doing it selfishly. Did you notice? He wants people to follow Saul. He didn't mention Jabesh Gilead. He didn't say it's time for us to finally welcome our brothers and sisters back into the fold. He doesn't say it's, it's time for us to rescue them even though they never rescued us. What he says is, who's going to follow me? So there's this hint of selfishness still there. He's stepping into leadership. That's a good thing. He's calling Israel to do something that they should be doing to help out their brothers and sisters. But he's doing it in a way that still has this tinge of selfishness. But let's keep going. See what shows up next. It says this. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out together as one. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000, and those of Judah, 30,000. Wow, they've got a whole ton of people. Keep going. They told the messengers who had come, say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we will surrender to you and you can do to us whatever you like. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. And during the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Three divisions attacking in the middle of the night. That sounds like Gideon, the first judge in the book of Judges. Perhaps the only judge that you can consider good, except for Deborah, she definitely was good. But the only guy in the book of Judges you can consider to be good is the guy at the beginning, Gideon. A guy who with only 300 men, men divided into three different divisions, stood around the outskirts of the camp late at night and said, God, you get to lead this. And so with only 300 men, they lit torches and they started blowing trumpets and they yelled and God made the people defeat themselves. And Gideon won a great battle. And here now, Saul, with three divisions of men, attacking at night, gets a great victory. Again, it's like, it's like now, finally, things are starting to come together. Things are starting to work and it looks good, but but the best part of the entire story comes in the next two verses. Verse 12. So then the people said to Samuel, Who was it that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we may put them to death. Man, they love killing people back then. 
But here's the thing. Remember last week at the end of the coronation ceremony, there was this small group of people that said, eh, we're not going to follow Saul. We're not going to bring him any tribute. We're just not going to call him our king. And Saul kept his mouth shut and nothing was said back then. And last week I indicated that I thought that was a moment of weakness, that Saul should have done something about these people who aren't bringing the king tribute. But this week, the same people are now at issue, and now people are saying to Samuel, hey, let's get those people, the people who didn't participate. Wait a minute, that sounds like the Jabesh Gilead story all over again. We're going to get the people who didn't participate, and we're going to slaughter them. What is Saul going to do? Is he, is he going to repeat the sins of the book of Judges? Or is he going to step into something new and be the king he's supposed to be? Verse 13. But Saul said, No one will be put to death today. For this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. That! That's what I'm saying. This is finally Saul stepping into being the king that he was supposed to be. The, the book of Judges ends with there's no king in Israel and everybody just does whatever they want to do. And now finally there's a king and he's stepping up and he's saying, God is in charge. God gave us the victory. No one's going to die on my watch. This is the moment. This is the thing that we've been waiting for. The king finally showing up and he shows up in power and authority. He brings justice to the oppressed and he brings justice to the oppressor. He gives mercy to the people who don't deserve it. He gives grace to the people who don't deserve it. And he steps into his position leading the people to unite around a person who's brave enough to say, God did this for us. And that's the thing. God is the one who gave them a king. God is the one who gave them mercy. God is the one who gave them grace. God is the one who gave them victory. It's God who brings liberation to the oppressed. It's God who brings judgment to the oppressors. It's God who brings mercy to the people who don't deserve it. It's God who brings grace to the people who don't deserve it. It's God who gives his spirit to a man who doesn't deserve it. And it's God who brings victory through that man to the people who now have a king. It's a shame it only lasts for this short period of time. Because this is pretty much the last time Saul does anything right. As we'll see in the next few weeks, the selfishness takes over, and it's all downhill from here. But in this moment, in this moment, we get a picture of a, of a time when everything is going right. We get a picture of a time when the people who have the power of God are doing the works of God. We get a picture of people who are receiving the grace of God give the grace of God to others. We, we get a picture of the people who've been liberated, bringing liberation to the others who are oppressed. We get a picture of the people who are not being oppressed go after the oppressors. We get a picture of people who are willing to put their own health, safety, life on the line so that they can serve someone else who doesn't deserve it because they are being led by a king who for one brief moment in his life has demonstrated 
kingly qualities. The Holy Spirit has come on him in power. And even though he's burning with anger and even though he's kind of selfish, God shines through. And for this one moment, everything works the way it's supposed to. And I got to tell you, you're with me on this, right? We need moments like that today. We need moments like that today. But what we really need is we just need some dude who receives the power of God who then does what God would do. That's what we need. We need someone who has the power of God and does what God would do. And here's the little bit of a secret. We don't have to wait for that person to show up. Let me show you something. The power of God came on Saul. The Holy Spirit came on Saul in power. And that's what led him to do what God would do. Let me show you something from the book of Acts, chapter 2. Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. This gift of the Holy Spirit is not for Saul in the past. It's for you and me today. You see, the thing that Saul needed to be is he had to be everything. He had to be the king. He had to be the agent of the Holy Spirit. And then he had to rally the people around him for unity. But guess what? Our king has already come. His name is Jesus. He already came. He already had the power of God. He already did the work of God. And the only thing that is remaining is for the people who follow him to be united in following him and to have the Holy Spirit's power in their life and do what Jesus did and what he would do. People who would use the power of God to do what God would do. And it's not just in Acts chapter 2. It's in Romans also. Take a look at this one. It says, The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit of God is in you and me if we are followers of Jesus. The same Spirit that empowered Saul to liberate his people. The same Spirit that was in Jesus performing all those miracles. The same Spirit that rose him from the dead. That same Spirit is alive and well in you and me. The question is not, do we have the power to do what needs to be done. The question is, will we use God's power to do what God would do? To this day, we still need someone who has God's power and does what God would do. And that's you and me. We don't have to wait around for some Saul to be anointed. Our king has already come. Our king is still on the throne. What we need is people who have the power of God to do what God would do. 
And if God is a God who liberates the oppressed, if God is a God who brings judgment against the oppressors, if God is a God who brings mercy to people who don't deserve it, if God is a God who gives grace to people who don't deserve it, if God is a God who can give his spirit and power to people who still use it selfishly, then God is definitely a God who can give you his spirit when you use it for his purposes in this world. We need to be people. We are people who have the power of God. We just need to do the work of God in this world. And so we finish up the story with chapter 12. Chapter 12 is Samuel giving a farewell speech. Saul has just had this pinnacle moment of success. The moment when all these things have come together and seem to be doing the right thing. Saul has just had this pinnacle moment and Samuel says, let's capitalize on it. Here it is in verse 14 of chapter 11 as we finish it. He says, then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord. And Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. And while they're throwing this party, Samuel steps up and chapter 12 is his final farewell. He's been leading the people for like 40 years, but now there's a king a king who's finally stepped up, a king who's, who's going to be doing the things we hope that he should be doing, a king who's got the power of God and we hope he does the works of God. And so Samuel says, it's time for me to step back. And so he gives this final speech. Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me and have given you a king, have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and gray and my sons are here with you. I've been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these things, I will make it right. I have never heard a leader be so vulnerable, so humble, but he says, I'll make it right. Verse 4, you have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. I've never heard a group of people talk about one leader that way before. You haven't done anything wrong to us. Samuel said to them, the Lord is witness against you and also his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your ancestors up out of Egypt. Now then, stand here, because I am going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. Okay, so here's what Samuel's doing for his final speech. He's like, you have just experienced a man with the power of God doing the works of God. And I'm going to tell you, Samuel says, I'm going to tell you that you are the people who will continue to make moments like this. But you will only continue to make moments like this if you remember the moments that came before. And Samuel says, I'm going to tell you about God. I'm going to confront you with how good God has been in your lives. Stuff before you even were around. And so Samuel is now going to give a list of all these things that he considers to be the things we have to remember in order for us to make moments like this in the future. Here it is, verse 9. Excuse me, 8. After Jacob entered Egypt, 
They cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. In one verse, he covers 400 years of history, and uh, almost 500 years of history. They were in Egypt, and they complained, and God brought them out and gave them this land. Verse 9. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We've sinned, we've forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtoreths, but now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jeroboam, another name for Gideon, by the way, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you so that you lived in safety. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now, here is the king you've chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. This is Samuel giving us some encouragement and also some warning but I want to highlight for you just a couple things here. I want to highlight for you just a couple things, things that we need to remember. Number one, God is gracious and good. Samuel lists off all these moments when God has delivered the people even though they didn't deserve it. God delivered the people just because they asked him to. God delivered the people even though they didn't deserve it. He is gracious and good. But God is also holy and just. When the people don't pursue God, when they don't seek God, God will bring judgment. He did it before, and Samuel says to them, he'll do it again. God is gracious and good. God is also holy and just. Let's keep reading verse 16. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called on the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and Samuel. Here's the thing to jot down. God is still unimaginably powerful. Samuel's like, listen, I'm just going to prove to you that... um, that God is still scary. God, how about some thunder? Badoom. Man. Unimaginably powerful. Verse 19. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants, so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Saul is standing right there. This whole celebration is for Saul. And the people are like, we realize it was pretty dumb asking, asking for a king. Sorry, Saul. Still pretty dumb. You see that God? He's pretty, he's pretty powerful. And I imagine Saul is kind of like, yeah, maybe. But anyway, they're like, please pray for us so that we don't die. <laughs> Verse 20. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. Oh, this is good. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. Listen, they can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they're useless. 
for the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. Don't ever forget that God, for some crazy reason, is pleased to have us as his own. God has all kinds of reasons to be judgmental against us. God has all kinds of reasons to just wipe us off the face of the planet. But don't ever forget that God is pleased to have us as his own. Sometimes it's hard. It's hard to imagine that God is caring for us. We're going through some hardship. It's hard to imagine that God is in the midst of this situation. I'm sure it was hard for the people of Jabesh Gilead to feel like God was in the midst of their situation when the neighboring country wants to gouge out all of their eyes. I'm sure they were worried. I'm sure they had felt God had abandoned them. I'm sure there are so many times that you have felt that same way. I know I have. It's not unusual to realize that I think I'm all alone here. But it's definitely unusual to constantly remember that God still is happy that He's got me. He's pleased to have us as His own. Don't ever forget that. Because in the midst of all this other stuff that we're dealing with, remembering God is gracious and good remembering he's holy and just, remembering he's unimaginably powerful, and remembering for some reason he's pleased to have us as his own puts everything else in perspective, doesn't it? Let's finish up the story. Verse 23, Samuel says, As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. I'm not going to be your leader anymore. I'm stepping aside so you have a king, but I'm going to keep praying for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things He has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. We need moments like this. We need to make moments like this. We are the people who each one of us are in the position of Saul. We have a direct relationship with the true king. We have the Holy Spirit's power on us. And all we need to do is do what God would do. And the victory that God would seek for himself will come about through us. Because God is unimaginably powerful. Because God is gracious and good. Because God is holy and just. And because God is incredibly, for some reason, pleased to have us as his own. For some reason, God likes being on our side. He's just waiting for someone to step up to say, I'm going to take the power of God, walk in the power of God, and do what God would do in this world. So let me give you something to take home. Remember God and what he's done, and then by his Spirit, do the same. Remember God and what he's done, and then by his Spirit, do the same. You're not going to make it thunder. Sorry. It's just a miracle that he gave Samuel the ability to ask him for at that one moment in time, but he's not going to ask you to do that, and that's okay, because that's a useless miracle anyway, you know? So what if you can make it loud? Can you love your neighbor? 
That's a much more powerful miracle. Can you, through love, change a person's heart? That would be a much bigger miracle. Can you help a person who's absolutely got no hope in their life come to a place where they have hope in their life? That's, that's a miracle. I tell you what, what we really need to do is we need to remember God and what he's done and then we need to, by his Holy Spirit, do the same. Because God is just waiting around looking for someone who will take his power and use it for what he would do. This is amazing. This moment, every single moment can be a moment like this. Every one of our moments can be a moment where we, because of the way we have acted in that moment, have made the world around us exactly the way it should be. For that brief moment, for Saul, it lasts for a very brief amount of time. For us, maybe we'll be able to continue it. But the point is, that moment, that one moment, can be exactly the way it's supposed to be if you and I will step into it in the power of God, doing what God would do. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.